the Development Policy Centre podcast. When Saddam Hussein was bombing his own people with chemical weapons, Nick Danziger was asked to go into Kurdistan to cover the story. What he realised from the experience was that we never hear about the trauma and what people witness in war. He was inspired to document the lives of poor women and children and travelled to eight countries across four continents to do so. In this podcast of a lecture at the 2018 Australasian Aid Conference, he shares his experiences and advocacy efforts and reflects on the global development agenda as seen from the ground. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for coming along this afternoon. My name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the director of the Development Policy Centre. And uh, along with the uh, Drill Hall Gallery, we're um, hosting this exhibition which is also part of our Australasian Aid Conference that starts tomorrow. Uh, Let us begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and by paying our respects uh, to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, It's great to see so many people here, and I'm sorry if you're not going to all be able to find a chair. You are welcome to sit on the floor, (laughs) if you'd like. Uh, It's uh, nice to see children here. I will say uh, some of the images are quite uh, intense or perhaps shocking, so just a warning for any uh, parents. Uh, I've been telling people that I'm very excited about this event, uh, and I am. Uh, You know, I've organised many conferences, uh, seminars and talks but I think this is the only exhibition that I've ever been involved in and probably the only one I'm ever going to be involved in. So I'm very pumped about this today. Uh, There are lots of people to thank for making this possible. Of course, we'd like to particularly thank Nick Danziger himself, whom we'll introduce to you in a minute for coming all the way uh, from Europe to Canberra. Uh, We'd like to thank the Drill Hall Gallery for putting on, agreeing to put on this exhibition, and in particular Jeanette and Terence. I'm not sure if they're here. but Thank you. Um, My colleagues at the Development Policy Centre, in particular Ashley Betteridge, who's put in a lot of work to make this possible. Uh, But in particular, I'd like to thank Cleo Fleming. Uh, Cleo is a former a colleague and still a uh, close associate and friend. And uh, Cleo Fleming here uh, saw Nick's exhibition in New York uh, back in 2015. And she wrote a blog for us. And she started to get into my ear about how we had to bring that exhibition here. And I had a look online. I thought it was pretty interesting. And I never organized an exhibition before. So I couldn't resist. <laughs> So we've provided the funding to uh, bring the exhibition out, but it's really clear who's talked to the different galleries, uh, talked to Nick, and uh, made it all possible. Uh, So without further ado, I'd like to hand hand you over to Cleo Fleming. Thank you, Cleo. Thank you, Stephen. Well, yeah, I'm so happy to be standing in this beautiful gallery with all of you today, finally welcoming Nick to Canberra. Um, As Stephen said, I saw this exhibition in New York in 2015, and I knew immediately that it had an important audience here in Canberra. I was just lucky that Stephen had the vision and the ability to make this happen. Um, Many of you will be familiar with Nick's work, either in photography, film or print. He's certainly received much attention and praise in each of those fields. However, he's been particularly recognised for his photography, winning prestigious awards and fellowships, um, including a World Photo Award for his mirror image of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and then President George W. Bush agreeing to enter the Iraq 
war. Honours and awards aside, Nick has spent the past 25 plus years advocating on behalf of the world's disenfranchised and disadvantaged. And it's this aspect of his career that he'll speak to, to us about now. So I'd like you to join me in welcoming Nick. Thank you very much for that incredible welcome. Um, sorry, I just switch. There we are. So I'm, I'm really um, very grateful to Stephen, to Cleo and Ashley, who also logistically got me. I had a little bit of a panic on Friday night. I was in Denpasar Airport when I was asked for my Australian visa. And I thought, how embarrassing. I didn't have one. You can actually apply online, but obviously I would imagine most of you are here legally. And I was told that within an hour I could have uh, the visa issued online. And I thought, how embarrassing. I've traveled to probably more than 120 countries for work, and I never even imagined, I didn't look whether I needed a visa or not. So the first thing I did when I was in, arrived in Sydney was to look at the the countries that I'm going to subsequent to Australia. And curiously, places like Philippines, Chile, and Argentina, I don't require a visa. Um, it's been quite a long process to get the exhibition here. I'd also like to thank Stephen at the back, who runs Drill Hall, and his team, who've hung this in a supremely professional manner. And um, this particular project is very close to my heart because I've spent 15 years working on it. Um, I didn't start as a photographer or indeed writing. I was very interested in becoming a painter. And in fact, I learned that Stephen taught at St. Martin's School of Art and I taught at Chelsea School of Art more or less the same period of time. And um, it also has to be said that I was very interested in traveling, adventure, cultures, different languages. I grew up partly in Switzerland and aged uh, 13, I announced to my parents that I was going to Paris for the week. They didn't think anything about it because I didn't have a passport, no tickets, no money, but I did manage to get to Paris for the week, and uh, much to their shock and horror. And I saw a very different side of life from the privileged one that I'd grown up in in Switzerland. I lived rough for most of the time because I didn't have money. And that really opened my mind up to a very different uh, way of living. And subsequent to that, I think another very formative experience, I went to art school, but aged uh, 18, I traveled to Latin America, to Bolivia. I went down a Bolivian tin mine, and I saw children younger than myself with no protective clothing, uh, pushing huge carts of rocks for the ore that they could extract for, for that. And none of the uh, men in the village lived beyond their 40s because of the silicosis, the damage to their lungs. And I realized it was a different way of, of traveling. But I continued at art school. I was a reasonably successful artist. And uh, maybe probably surprising to all of you, but the real inspiration for me was the Belgian cartoon character, Tintin. <laughs> so uh, one of the first journeys I made um, of any serious note was one that resulted in a book. I was awarded a Winston Churchill Memorial Fellowship to travel to Central America to fell a tree, build my own dugout canoe, and take it through Belize, Guatemala, and Mexico. But the permissions were rescinded at the last minute. And the Churchill Trust very generously said, you have a year to think up another project. I wanted to travel through Soviet Central Asia. And some of you may remember that a Korean airliner was shot out of the sky. And so that journey ended in disaster. I wasn't able to start that journey. I then decided that I would go to what was then Burma, and half the Burmese cabinet were blown up in a suicide attack. So the Churchill Trust were getting very suspicious about my plan intentions, and I said, look, I want to go to the ancient silk routes to China. And uh, they said, well, that's fine. Have you got any visas? And I said, no, I didn't, but it had never prevented me from traveling before. So they agreed to it, but what was really embarrassing was that I'd spent the fellowship money before starting the journey. <laughs> so very sheepishly, as I headed towards the door, the exit of the Secretary General's office, I had to turn around and say, um, thank you for agreeing that I can go, but I don't have any funding left. 
and they gave me 800 pounds in those days, about $1,000, which was enough for the first 16 months of that journey. When I returned home, um, I wrote a book about those travels, which I understand some of you here have read, and it changed my life because, uh, unknown to me, I was working in a menial job in the United States, and the book became a bestseller. And lots of magazines and, and even the publishers wanted me to write more books, do different stories, and I wasn't interested until I heard what was happening in Iraq when Saddam Hussein was bombing his own people with chemical weapons. And a, a British UK color supplement said, would I go into Kurdistan, into the areas of Iraq where this was taking place, because they knew that I had visited those areas on that first journey. And I headed to um, Iraq, a western uh, part, and I was on the border with, with uh, Turkey, and I entered a refugee camp. It was my first contact. And when I arrived in the, this refugee camp, there was a lot of pandemonium, lots of young people, quite hysterical. And as I started to take pictures, I heard gunshots ring out. It was probably quite naive. I ran towards the gunshots. And the unarmed refugees were being fired at by the soldiers who were there to protect them. And the dead and injured were being brought back into the center of the camp. And obviously, witnessing that were many of the vulnerable, innocent, unarmed refugees, the women, and particularly the children. And when we read about what takes place today, we never hear about the real casualties of war. We hear about the numbers of the dead and the injured. But we don't hear about the trauma and what so many people witness in these areas of difficulties. And that, in a sense, was a journey that really inspired me to carry on in my travels, but with a purpose and with the hope that maybe bringing news out would maybe change the way we think about the world. Today, I go into schools, primary schools, secondary schools, universities. I talk to also women's groups. I do a lot of work with women. And often I'm approached by non-governmental organizations, as was the case in 2005, by World Vision, to look at the Millennium Development Goals. How were they faring? So I began that journey in 2005 in Niger. Initially, World Vision are known, many of you might have heard of this organization, the second largest uh, turnover of funding in the world. And they sponsor a lot of children. So they were taking me to children that they had sponsored, or I should say those individuals around the world that sponsor children elsewhere in the world. And what I said to them was the project was actually to see how people who were not assisted, the vast majority of people on the planet, particularly in the developing world, who don't receive assistance from outside sources or indeed their own governments. So this is a picture of Abbas. Abbas, aged 15, descending the mine shaft. This particular mine shaft, at this point, 23 meters deep. He's looking for gold. His boats plunged to his death a year prior to this picture being taken. There are no safety devices. The way that he goes down the 23 meters are little bits of earth that have been dug out of the wall, and he puts his hand and feet in those divots as he climbs down. And when you get to the bottom, you have to crawl on all fours to get into the galleries, which are unsupported. There are no beams to hold up the tunnels. And all of the miners, which you see here, none of them have ever seen what we use gold for. They don't understand the value. Abbas hoped to send money that he was going to make in the mine home. But he was never able to send that money home. On every single day, there were injuries, if not deaths, in the mines. Abbas works eight to nine hours a day, minimum, seven days a week. He has two days off a year. 
In the winter, the government tried to close the mines, but people are desperate to earn a living and they still continue to mine. The rains mean that often the mine shafts and those galleries collapse on the miners. When I went back five years later, by the way, here we can see a pharmacist. So we often talk about narcotics and drug abuse. They use a mixture of various medicines so that they continue to be able to work because of the conditions. But five years later, I returned, and the International Labour Organization had put up signs around the mining town saying, children under the age of 16 should not be allowed to work. So every time I asked the children how old they were, they would say 18. And then I'd say, well, how long have you been working down the mines? And they would say, three, four years. But the conditions hadn't improved. Many suffering injuries, few able to find a speck of gold that was going to give them any money. I found Abbas again because I thought what would be interesting would be to follow up on the same individuals. And Abbas was no longer working down the mine shaft because of the dangers. If you work on the top, you get a pittance of a salary, but at least it's a salary. And Abbas had saved enough money to get married and he said, would I like to meet his wife and his mother? So we went to his village. Sorry. And sorry about the lighting, but you'll see some of the pictures in the exhibition. Abbas is on the right. And I don't know whether you can decide which is the mother and which is his wife. Aisha is his wife, aged 13. 50%, half of all girls are married in this country by the age of 15. Three quarters are married by the time they are 18. Five years later, I find Abbas again. He's now living independently, not with his mother. His treasure is the double bed, which cannot be used because one of the legs of the bed is broken. And he's upset because Aisha, now aged 18, cannot give him the child, the boy that he wanted. So what is Abbas's solution? Some of you can probably guess. It's to buy a second wife. This is Latifa, age 13, Abbas's second wife. When you get to know the families, now a little bit more courageous, I discuss with their fathers. I said to Latifa's father, don't you know that there are laws, which there are even in that country, against child marriages? Yes, but I needed the money. I needed to buy more sheep. And after buying four sheep, I, I was ill and I needed to buy medication. I know it's much better if our girls 16, 17, 18, 20 to get married. But that's not the way here. And then you look at the conditions. You saw Latifa pounding the millet here. Already their hands are often destroyed, not only because of making a flour, but hauling the water up from the wells, sometimes 30 meters deep. Imagine lifting a bucket of water and then having to walk two and a half kilometers one way to bring that back home. Journey that's done three times a day, or four, so that's 15 to 20 kilometers. And Abbas now is broke because he borrowed money to pay for Latifa. So he's now gone down the mines again. This is the new mining site. Two weeks prior to taking this picture, this site didn't exist, but someone found a nugget of gold. The mine shafts are already 20 to 40 meters deep. And I don't mean to say it pejoratively, but you know what happens when a little drop of meat in a hot country attracts flies. The same here. Not hundreds, probably more than several thousands. The whole of, as you can see, this area covered 
by thousands of individuals seeking to earn some money. In 2005, walking through a village, I saw these twins and I spoke to what I thought was the mother, Fatima, here on the right. And she explained that she was the aunt. Her sister was having difficulty during her pregnancy, the last uh, days of her pregnancy. She needed emergency treatment. It took the family three days to raise the money for the petrol for the ambulance to travel the 72 kilometers. She got to the hospital. She gave birth. They didn't realize that there was a twin on the way. One ultrasound machine in this country at that point in time. And as she gave birth to the twin, she died giving birth. Fatima didn't have the money to bring the twins back home. It was the hospital staff, the nurses and doctors that paid for the bus fare. And five years later, because I didn't expect to do this project, I had some difficulty refining the family, but I did. And I, very surprisingly, and probably they were more shocked than I was, found them. And I asked, where's Hussein and Hassana? And they said the twins had died a few months after I had visited. Died? What did they die of? And the aunt told me that they hadn't the money to buy the milk powder to feed the twins. They also had diarrhea, so I'm sure that it was a combination of factors. And we often read the figures, but when you travel to these countries in the way that I do, you understand what the reality means for individuals on the ground. They didn't show me where the twins were buried, but that was taken 10 years later on the ground at the edge of the village where they bury the babies and the children. I mentioned about the ambulance. I thought it was some similar to something that we might have in the West, but that was the ambulance. It no longer functions. They have a new one. And that gives you an idea of the conditions, even for an emergency case. And so what did I do? I went back to the hospital to trace the actual reasons why Aisha, the mother, had died. So I'm going to show you a picture of the clinic and the hospital where women give birth. This is not Aisha. There are two surgeons for this department in the country. They have two ambulances to serve a population of the size of a country equivalent to both Wales and Northern Ireland put together. Many of the women die in childbirth. And when I asked the surgeon and the matron if we could go through the hospital records to see what Aisha had died of, they agreed. And I had a vague idea of how many months old they were when uh, I met them, so we worked our way backwards. And Aisha was brought to the hospital with preeclampsia. I'm not a medical person, I don't know if any of you here are. But women in developed societies haven't died in such a fashion for over a hundred years. I didn't know how old Aisha was, it never occurred to me to ask. And I looked at the death certificate in the archives. She was 14 years old. And the surgeon himself was angry. And he then turned the pages of the book, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, repeatedly. This woman is 27 years old. She has already given birth to seven children. And I talked about contraception. So they used to administer it. And when the men found out that the women were having implants, the men threatened the two surgeons. But the women had been pleading to receive contraception. So they now, instead of putting an implant, they do a small injection so that the men cannot feel where the implant is. But it doesn't have the same effectiveness. 
and where the situations have changed. On my last visit in 2015, the government only allowed me to visit those regions if I was accompanied by a platoon of their soldiers. Most of the extremist organizations, Al-Muzao, affiliated to Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, are operating in these areas. I refused to travel with armed people. I was in a vehicle ahead of them. But in the villages, including Abbas's village, when we arrived like this, most of the young men had fled. Why? Because they thought they were going to be press ganged into one of these groups. But when I spoke to the parents, their answer, particularly the mothers, was, anyone who comes in here and offers even food to our children, they will leave with them, whether it's the government, a militia, or one of these organizations, being the extremist organizations. Our children are hungry. On two days, this military vehicle, so-called military vehicle, had to be hired from a driver because the barracks didn't have a vehicle free. And on one day, they didn't have the petrol. I actually had to buy the petrol so that we could work that day. I have to say they were very professional in the way that they did look after me. And often, People are usually horrified by seeing the dog, dog being totally emaciated. But this is a famine. The people no longer have anything to eat. Why don't they have food to eat? We could ask, why weren't the twins fed? In all the countries I have visited where famines have taken place and where I've been witness to people dying for lack of food, the food is available, but the people cannot afford to purchase the food, which was equally the case here. In the nearest large town, there were sacks and sacks of rice and millet and grains that would have kept the people alive. I didn't realize at the time, five years later, that Aisha was in that village. She was in the picture that I had taken. In this picture, she is seven years old. She spends her whole day with the animals on her own. And even though education is free, which we will come to later on, she has never attended a school. And when I returned in 2015, Aisha told me that she had been sold in marriage for the following year for the equivalent of 36 US dollars. And children are so often the victims of what takes place. This is during a civil war. And the children, at night, so that they're not kidnapped, would come to disused warehouses and sleep there so that they would be protected. And in the morning, I found three sisters, Judith, Gloria, and Miriam. And I decided to walk with them home. They were orphans. And here they are in their own hut that they rent, eating their only meal of the day. In this picture, Gloria is 13, Judith is 11, uh, Miriam is 7, and the baby is 18 months. Their parents have died of AIDS. But they realized education is supremely important. On the weekends, they work to earn enough money to pay the rent, and to be able to go to school. They were two months in rent arrears there. But you can see that here they are, studying, preparing to go to school. Judith didn't have the school uniform, so when she arrived at school, she was punished for not wearing the school uniform. Her only other shirt was the school white shirt required, but it wasn't dry enough for her to put on. Her punishment was to clean the school toilets. There they are, 40 minutes walking to school. And this is a country that was very proud because they were well on target to meet MDG2, Universal Primary Education. But then I arrived at the school, and what did I discover? 125 children in the classroom. Is school truly free? Half the children couldn't afford books or paper. 
The teacher told me that chalk is rationed. They could not get to the end of term with enough chalk to write on the blackboard. And five years later, I expected things to improve, and I counted 133 children in one of the classrooms in the school. So the target was met, but what was the quality of education? Everyone who looks at those figures thinks many of the countries are on track and met those targets, but I've been to five of those countries, and it is the same situation where you have more than 100 children in a classroom. And sometimes we don't think about, you know, many people are interested in, and I see that with child sponsorship, building schools. But over and over across the world, what I see is children who are happy to study under a tree. What they want is to teach. What they need are the tools, not the buildings, not even electricity. I watch children run home to do their homework because at night there's no electricity. But they know that their future is education. So much so that in this picture you see Irene. She's in a market here. Irene needed one dollar to remain at school, to buy those school books. Her parents weren't going to give her the money. The brothers are going to school. So what does Irene do? She follows the path of several of her classmates and sells herself. She knows by sleeping with a man, she can get that one dollar. A third of it, her class turns out the girls, a third of the girls end up as sex workers so that they can stay at school. And when we talk about extreme poverty, what is extreme poverty? Here you have Christabel referred to as the queen bee who makes them up and lends them clothes because they don't have the money to purchase makeup or the clothes that they think will make them look attractive to their potential clients. They all know about the dangers of sexually transmitted diseases. But five years later, Irene is HIV positive. And all of those girls said, how can we say no to the, the men who demand to have sex in the way that they have? We are powerless. And the young girl that you saw in the previous picture is now no longer alive. And to come back to Gloria and Judith and Miriam, as I mentioned, they were orphans. They were eventually taken into an orphanage. But again, what kind of care did they receive? Gloria unfortunately died of hepatitis, hepatitis C. And the sisters were unable to give her a proper burial. That is the field where they ended up burying the sister. But I would like to say that most of the people, and particularly the children that I meet, are survivors. This is Hov and Chan. They go to school in the mornings. And her, their grandmother left them $25. And the grandmother said, invest it wisely. Don't just spend it. So what did Chana decide to do? The mother's too ill. She buys a weighing scale. Because she walks around in the street and like we would hail a taxi there, you hail someone to weigh you. So she earns a living by using that weighing scale. And the reason that she has to earn a living is because Rehorn, her mother, is too ill, needs a hysterectomy, and doesn't have the money to have one. You can see here Chana at night, waiting for clients. And five years later, Pov here is again shining his shoes. What I should mention, in that first picture, he didn't have his shoe shining equipment because the police stole it from him and then demanded money so that he could then get back his shoe shining equipment. Pov was arrested three years after I took that previous picture. There was a fight. He was not involved. 
But he was held in prison, he wasn't charged, wasn't convicted. And again, when we talk about the positive aspects, because I know some of these stories are very difficult, but the person that I worked with there, we found legal aid, free legal aid for people without means to get him out of prison. But we had to bribe the judge to get him out of prison, even though there was no conviction or charge. And there are people working in this fashion to help those even where justice in theory should exist, for those at the bottom end of the economic scale, they have no access, access to legal uh, uh, aid or people who would normally help them. We can see, again, something uh, very important about the situation in this particular country. Most people without means squat the land. They were removed from the center of the capital to 15 kilometers beyond the city limit. They were told that homes had been built for them. Today, a Singapore developer has built multi-story tower block where they used to live. The apartments go for a minimum of $250,000. 15 kilometers from the city limit, they are now being evicted again, pushed out, because they don't own the land, and the city is expanding at such a rate that developers now want this land. I also discovered on that particular trip, the last one in 2015, that they were borrowing money. When Pov was in prison, his mother had to borrow money because, as you saw, she was ill. The daughter had found work in Malaysia with a Chinese family. She borrowed $100. And five years later, when I went back in 2015, I said, had she paid the money off? She said, no, no, I still have the $100 debt. And I said, surely you paid something off. And she showed me what she had paid off. We calculated. She had paid, I might have the figure wrong, and it might be in the caption, something like $1,700 interest on that original $100 loan. And it turns out that all of this community are indebted to two loan sharks. Now this is Pov, who's now got a business going with money borrowed from neighbors as opposed to the loan shark. And this is Chana, who did return from Malaysia, where, I won't go into the details, she was clearly abused by the family that she was working for. She did leave her grandchild behind, and Rehorn, the grandmother, has been looking after the child. The country that I revisit quite repeatedly, I was there 10 days ago, this is in Armenia, Tatavik and Ida. Their mother had left, like many Armenians, looking for work. There is 80% unemployment in Gumri, the second largest city in Armenia. Ida here is 30, Tatavik is two and a half. They're living in temporary accommodation. There is no electricity, there is no running water, and therefore no heating. A doctor was able to visit them because the child was very ill, Tatovic, and said that there is a great risk that your sister will die unless she gets medical treatment. Eventually, she was taken by social services to a sanitarium. And the older sister, when the mother returned, decided that the easiest way out of poverty was to get married so that she wouldn't be a burden on her mother. But sometimes men don't think the way that maybe some of us would think. Every time he returns home from Russia, nine months later, there's another baby. Here, she is 25 years old. She already has four children. I was there 10 days ago. She now has a fifth child, living in the same conditions. No electricity, no heating and barely able to feed her children. And this is then, this is Hasmik, the grandmother, who lives in a room which is twice the length of a single bed and not wide enough to turn the bed around. And she lives with now uh, Tatovic, who um, has fortunately been able to stay at school. Why do I say fortunately? Because they find it so difficult to make ends meet that the mother who I've now met wants her daughter 
aged 14, last year, now 15, to quit school to earn money. And I tried to explain, what, what kind of living is she going to make age 15 in a town where you have 80% unemployment? There are positive stories. This is a story from Latin America, from Bolivia, in a village. When I first visited in 2005, that year, six women and their babies died in childbirth, either the baby or the mother. Five years later, I return. Schools have been built. There are neonatal visits. And that year, only one woman died as a result of being pregnant and through childbirth. And again, individuals do have great school, lay great school by education. So this is Eugenia in that same town and the village. The father wanted his children to receive an education. So he wouldn't allow his daughter to walk the two hours to the nearest school for reasons of security. But five years later, he had sold half of his livestock, the llamas, so that he could buy a little piece of land in Oruru, a small city, to send his children to school. Curiously, the local village did have a school, but he wanted his children to receive education in Spanish as opposed to the local language, Quechua. So there are many reasons that do prevent girls going to school, not just security, but in one of those previous pictures also, and when we talked about building schools, one thing that people often forget about are toilets, something very simple. But many of the schools that I visited in those countries, the girls are excluded from school because, as many of you know, the boys, what can they do? They can stand up, go into the bush, and do what they need to do. Much more complicated for the girls. So simply not having enough toilets in schools prevents girls from receiving an education. In this case, there's a very proactive father. But because they didn't go to school till their teenage years, they have found it very, very difficult to remain at school. The parents have a very tough life on the Bolivian Altiplano. The children come home on holidays to do that work. The hard slog of raising llamas, of cultivating potatoes. And Anselmo, who is the father here, this is the son, he wants his children to take over the running of their estancia. But he said to me quietly, because he's now, I think this is the interesting thing about going back over and over to, to families, he confided in me, in no way am I going to live in the countryside. And over and over again, in so many of the rural areas that I have visited across the world, all the young people, almost without exception, they want to migrate, not to a foreign land, but to the cities. The cities, because the conditions, the living conditions are better, the quality of life, even in the most difficult neighborhoods, they have a quality of life that doesn't exist in these rural areas. He's actually been elected to the local council in the rural area, but has no intention of remaining there. I mentioned there are positive stories. In Tamil Nadu, in southern uh, India, this is Jiva, who in 2005 explained that this very large community of Dalits, transgender, were forced into, as it were, the margins of society because they are not recognized, couldn't get a job, and therefore, again, sex work was the easiest way to earn a living, and often the only way to earn a living. But five years later, the state is on its way to recognizing transgender people. His dream, or her dream, was to go and study for a bachelor's degree. So here she's actually about to graduate with the idea of then studying for a master's. And five years later, Jiva now not only has a master's degree, but runs a drop-in center for transgender or LGBTQ um, people. 
So it shows you extraordinary transformation. And over ago, I mentioned about Bolivians, discussion I had last night. I mean, I'm all for helping people across the world and NGOs, not for profits, do great work. But unless government policies are changed, you are not going to change the circumstances of the majority of the people in the countries, certainly, that I have visited. And the two countries where we've heard positive stories, what has taken place? Government policy has changed. So much so that in Bolivia, I think what was so interesting for me that on a subsequent visit, not related to this project, I met the Minister of Development. And I was very curious because having seen the MDG2 figures across the world, all the countries proud to say that if they were not on target, the graph was on its way up. And in Bolivia, it was on its way down. Most people wanted to be out there to prove particularly to the developing nations, what a great job they were doing. And I said, how? I've seen more and more schools built in, in, in villages that had no schools. How come the graph is going down? And she said, well, you know, we didn't have an independent assessment, evaluators, monitors going out. And when we did that, we discovered that there were a lot of ghost students. The government had so incentivized the idea of bringing children into school that the teachers and the head teachers were only too keen to build up those figures. But again, the honesty of a government clearly on a line that wanted to help its people, where I could actually see that improvement on the ground. And that has been a steady improvement. Where those schools were built today, there are also basketball courts. As I mentioned, Women are now not only able to get to neonatal clinics, they are actually encouraged to go. So there are incentives to get the women to go. But ultimately, I suppose the reality, and what was very disappointing for me, Cleo saw the exhibition in New York where I wanted it to be in September 2015, when everyone was going to reassess the MDGs. UNDP wanted the exhibition. They were a bit late in discovering uh, that the exhibition was available. And uh, the communications people were very excited about having these stories. But when they read the captions, they were less interested. They said, would you mind if we um, pick the stories we want to exhibit? <laughs> so already I was getting a little nervous and the person I was in contact with on the phone, likewise, they then had the goal not only to make a selection of exclusively positive stories, but they wanted to rewrite the captions to the stories. And that's why Cleo didn't see the exhibition at the United Nations, because I didn't want it to be exhibited in those conditions. And what I later discovered, that it also was not going to be open to the general public, it was, as it were, for policymakers and ministers and heads of state, which again, I think, only further distorts the way that those people who really do have it in their power to make changes, what kind of view they will have of what those MDGs meant for the people. So I do want to spend, uh, not at home on a, on a difficult story, but this is Franklin in Central America, in a neighborhood which um, most people are squatting the land. As you can see, half of that house has been washed away in the rains, the rainy season. But you can see Franklin. None of these pictures are posed. None of them have been cropped when you look at the exhibition. That's how I've taken the pictures. But Franklin is doing his homework, and his grandmother, Maria Edmer, in the background. And five years later, she's very, very proud that he is one of the best students in the class and top in mathematics. So I say to Franklin, you know, what do you want to be? What do you want to become? I want to be a banker. <laughs> probably not the bankers that we imagine. I think probably, you know, behind the window at the till or something. But she was very worried. She said, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this because we don't have the equivalent of 80 US cents to get him to the high school and back every day. And five years later, 2015, I returned. Um, I had different people who were funding this project. World Vision weren't interested in the second part, the third part. They were kind of interested. 
But they, no one wanted to take me into this neighborhood because I was told the neighborhood had become very violent, uh, lots of difficulties. But I managed through this difficult neighborhood to find their home and immediately found Franklin, who was in the hut that you saw in the original picture with his grandmother. And when the mother heard that I was back, she came running towards me, and I was there with a, a writer. And already the writer had noticed that Franklin was on the bed next to a very long knife, serrated knife. And mother explained what had happened the year previously. Franklin never made it to high school. And because he needed money and a job, what did he end up doing? There were no money and jobs. He ended up dealing drugs with one of the gangs that have proliferated throughout Latin America. And one day, he was selling drugs with three of his friends at the edge of their neighborhood. And the military police got hold of them. One of the kids managed to run away. He ran into this neighborhood, screaming for the parents of those three children that they had caught. And Franklin's mom ran to the edge of the neighborhood to find Franklin lying down on the pavement with the boot of the military policeman on his head, about to be shot. The two other boys had already been executed. The mother was screaming. They put her on the floor, but they released her with Franklin. Franklin, obviously highly traumatized, has left the gang, but they are now threatening to kill him because of his knowledge. Hence the serrated knife next to him. The family sell potato chips and banana chips. And as they said, how are we going to ever get out of the situation? We don't have the 4,000 US dollars to get Franklin to the United States, which is seen as the only place for any hope of a decent future. And the other families, some of whom will be in the pictures that I have followed in that neighborhood, they say, we see and hear nothing, meaning that gunshots ring out in that neighborhood. The military police actually don't go into the center of that neighborhood. And people's lives are held hostage to a situation which is unlikely to change at the moment because it is a government whose policies are not there to help the majority of their people, where corruption is endemic. And like the earlier stories of the surgeons where they tell you they might be top of the class, but the person at the top of the class isn't going to get that scholarship or fellowship to go to a foreign country. It's going to be the children of the people at the top of the ladder in the ministries or the government ministers. The frustration of these bright, young, and yes, in many cases, educated young people who find it so difficult to get out of a situation of which they have no control. We hear often about people leaving, I mean, not just for Australia, but in the West, in Europe, people are terrified about the numbers of people leaving. They call them economic migrants. Those are usually the people who have money to pay the human smugglers. <coughs> Most of the people you saw in these pictures will never have the money to leave their countries. And it's not just jobs that they want and decent livelihoods. They also want liberty and justice. The SDGs, I think, go some way to addressing some of these issues that weren't addressed under the MDGs. But as I think many of you know, they are long and complicated. Uh, probably the MDGs weren't, um, I think, probably as solid as they should have been and as in-depth as they should have been. But when I travel, most people didn't know about the MDGs and many government officials who really it was their portfolio, I wonder how they're going to manage with the SDGs. So I'll probably end on that note. I did learn from some of you here that you know about my trips to other countries. So 
I will be giving another talk on Thursday at the School of Art and Design, is that right? So uh, just a few images. North Korea, I will talk about some of these leaders that I have followed behind the scenes. So again, interestingly, the presidents or prime ministers of various countries of which uh, we've seen in the pictures today. Uh, I've done a lot of work with women in conflict, so I'll talk a little bit about uh, following uh, women over a decade. Um, and then some just other general pictures. Obviously, you might not want to hear about the All Blacks, but uh, I spent five amazing weeks behind the scenes uh, with the All Blacks. And for me, it was very interesting because of their indigenous population. Uh, I was allowed in on the training sessions for the Haka and them explaining to, as it were, the, uh, the white people of New Zealand what the Haka means to them and their ancestors. So everywhere I've gone, I think I've been extremely fortunate to have the trust of the people I work with. And I, I would like to say that I owe it uh, to a big team of people because we often see uh, the photographer is the individual who takes uh, the pictures and this works. So I get a bit emotional, but I think about a lot of people I leave behind. But um, ultimately, it's teamwork. And thank you for being so numerous here, and to Cleo and Stephen and Ashley and Stephen behind as well for having the exhibition here. Thank you. We have time for some questions, if anyone's brave enough to put up their hand. Sorry, that was an awful lot probably in a short period of time, but um, yeah, if you have any questions now or I'll be around, you know, do feel free to ask. So, um, I'm wondering, uh, when you travel to different places, uh, it's like, how do you build trust with a lot of with the, like with the local people you train with, and how you keep story? Especially sometimes, like if you travel to a new place, it's probably just a few days later. And how you could uh, build trust with all the people around here, and that allow you to do yourself? Well, as I said, it's teamwork. So you know, I work with people who. Uh, so sometimes I have researchers. So I now go hopefully fairly well informed to the country. But I work with local people who, in a sense, give me access to these communities that I visit and that I photograph. I'm extremely open about what I do. I never pay people. Uh, some people might think a white guy shows up with a camera that their lives are going to change. I say nothing's going to change. And then by spending time, particularly why I so, in one sense, enjoy going back is because People do open up, they begin to trust you. And I think we know that personally. If you meet someone for the first time, you're not going to reveal very much of yourself. And you go back and back and reborn, who you'll see in the pictures in Cambodia on my last visit, said I will pull you back up and tell you something that even my children. And she knows I'm, I'm trying to publish a book of this work, and she knows I'm going to publish it. It's, it's very difficult sometimes, even when you gain that trust where the people really understand the implications of, of what they reveal to them. But I think sometimes people do have a desire also to talk. And although I take pictures of world leaders and heads of state, I mean, for me, these are you know, the people that I work with who are often living in extreme poverty. You know, they're the real heroes who struggle to survive on a daily basis. And why shouldn't their stories be recorded? Because it's often the case that I'm criticized taking people in countries where there is great poverty, why don't we show, you know, that there is a side of lots of wealthy people and people are doing very well, but why should I do that? We see in our magazines plenty of celebrities and film stars and I think they deserve as much coverage, if not more, than those who probably haven't had to struggle very much in their lives. So the trust is built up over a period of time, but through Mediators, I would say. Sorry, I arrived late when you were talking about Abbas doing the gold mining. Which country was that? In so, I, so I will say the country is Niger, but one of the reasons, I mean, in the exhibition you will see the countries, but 
I don't want to further stigmatize countries because what happens in Niger, and I also worked in Burkina Faso, extraordinary stories, particularly about young girls who leave their homes, age six, go and work in the cities. So it is Niger, but I could have been in Burkina Faso, I could have been in Mali, I could have been in Chad, other countries. And I did talk about um, teenage marriages, well, you know, that exists in probably 20 countries across the world. So I, I, it's unfortunate, but people do want to know where the pictures were taken. How do you keep your distance? Because I feel like you get really close to it, but at the same time, getting too close, it's very easy to it. Well, you know, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't, as I mentioned, I studied as an artist. I never studied photography or documentary filmmaking or writing. You know, I, I was told, you know, as when I first started doing so-called journalism, you've got to be objective and independent. And how can you be objective? And, and I do get involved, and it, is, it gets increasingly dif difficult. And I have a family, I have children, I have to admit, I mean, I nearly cried, I did cry today, but when, when I was taking pictures of Aisha, the girl who was the shepherdess, and when they told me that she was going to be married a year later, I, you know, I cried and I was thinking, you know, that could be my daughter. So, you know, I tried to my business, but it's difficult. And probably why I continue to do this work is because it's, it's difficult not to go back. So. Um, it was interesting that you said that so many of the shots are not posed. How conscious are you of, of the art of what you're doing? So, you know, again, another criticism, you know, some people say, oh, the pictures are beautiful, but what am I meant to do? Am I meant to take them out of focus or not properly framed? And so, uh, probably my training as an artist, you know, I, I've been to art schools where I tell photography students, have a look at Caravaggio, and a lot of them go, who? And, and I say, you know, he's a painter. Why would I want to look at a painter? So, you know, I would say I have a lot of inspirations. I think it's really important to make strong images so that people and publishers and you know, media will look at them and, and you're more likely to get the work seen. I don't want these, this work to go in a drawer. You know, if they've revealed themselves that trust, I hope that their story is going to be told because I've told them, I'm hoping to tell your story. So I think it is important. And when I say I don't allow my images to be cropped because this is how I want the picture to be seen. They're not posed. They're not... You know, that this is their life and I want to put it in the context of where they're living. So I do fight and I struggle to get those images. They're taken on black and white film, which is expensive and digitally you could just keep on deleting and taking more pictures, but it's not the way I work. It's, it's with a purpose and a, and a, and a view and a, a vision of what I'm trying to communicate. So I, I think, you know, I hope the pictures are strong because I think that makes people look at them. And it's really difficult to get this type of work published today. <clears throat> and, you know, there are stories, and not to confuse the issue, but I've just come back from Armenia on a story about elderly isolated people. And every editor I show the pictures, picture editors, they're really moved by the pictures. Uh, not to say it, because, you know, if we talk about Caravaggio, these women are living in rooms with no electricity. A woman I found living in a garage, nearly 90 years old. And, you know, I just home to the UK, so, you know, the editors will say, oh, you know, actually, it's not the UK. If it was a UK story, you know, it would be interesting to our readers. You know, what kind of world are we living in? And everyone says to me, oh, yeah, but, you know, oh, you're a photographer. You know, I take pictures of my, you know, it's like everyone's become a photographer. But my answer to that is, well, you know, if I hand you a violin, can you play the violin? And, and I think photography... Also, there's a difference in the way pictures are taken and the stories. And I think what's really a shame today is that's what photo editors who are there or should be there to defend us, you know, the idea of sending someone to research a story. Photojournalism is not just about taking pictures, it's knowing that the story is a real story. That when they tell you things, you're not just going to listen and believe it, that you'll then really look into it. Another question? Probably, some of you probably need to leave me. Well, anyway, what are you? I'm just wondering, 
Obviously, you have very personal contact with all the people in these dire situations. Do you ever just see simple solutions that there's just too much bureaucracy that can be put in place? Or, like, yeah. Do you ever have policy ideas like that that cross over into a different realm outside of art and photography? Well, I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of simple solutions that could be adopted, but I think, you know, we do, and I think many of the reasons that some of you might not, you know, wish to donate to a certain agency or whatever, you know, because you feel maybe there's the corruption of the country, it is very difficult to penetrate all of that. What I would say is that, you know, basically, I think um, it, it, they are complicated. I mean, there are simple solutions, you know, build toilets at school so that girls have access to education. So toilets are really important. I tell primary school children that, you know, there are more mobile phones in the world today than there are toilets. <laughs> You know, and what's more important. And when we invest in education, what I discovered actually through this project is that you can send a child to school, and it was actually an irony space that uh, someone at World Vision and myself, we tried to help her, but it wasn't just getting her to school, you need money so that she doesn't need to earn a living to buy food, etc. But then someone falls ill in the family, and any savings you have are gone. So if you don't have education and healthcare together, kids are going to fall out of school, or the parents are going to be ill. There are, it's just not possible to just think, like, sponsor a child, we'll get him through school, because there are other issues. And I think those are those kind of basic, and we can call them human rights, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They just don't exist for you know, billions of people across the world. And people talk about the trickle-down effect, um, that, you know, if you have rich people, they spend their money and go and poor people. But, you know, what I've seen, and I'm not an economist, and many of you here could talk about it better than I can, but it's the trickle up All of the people you see here, they spend every cent, you know, cent that they have because they need to buy food or they need to buy medication or cloth to sew the uniforms for their children to go to school. They don't have any savings. They spend it all. So for me, it's not the trickle down, it's the trickle up. They just, I mean, you know, I count most of those families, half of them probably literally do not have, and they've probably never had any savings. I think I probably should end it there. Yeah, I'm around, I think. I don't know what's happening, but you're yeah, welcome to. Please stay and um, view the exhibition, have a drink talk and, and thank you so much. I have one thing, because I hate publicity, but Stephen did say I could say it, so I added this slide. I'm, I'm crowdsourcing, I don't know if you know what crowdfunding is, but I'm crowdfunding the book of this project. So, you know, if anyone's interested, it's a, it's a, a crowdfunding platform called unbound.com, and if you pledge, you get your name in the book. But it might be expensive here, because the postage comes on top, so... <laughs> Anyway, we'll pass on that one because I hate publicity. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>